Nobody is obliged to believe either in the future of history or in the future of society. It is possible that scarcely any other matter, however, upon which our thoughts and feelings have changed so little since the very earliest times, except that it still has not been established whether it is the novel that prevents man from forgetting himself or the impossibility of forgetfulness that makes him write novels. I'm Travis Holland, and this is Footnotes to a Novel. A warning. This episode contains material which may not be suitable for younger listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Murder, the men at Tolan Fen thought. It was May 11th, 1950, and the two men, local farmers finished with their early spring planting, had spent all that cloudy afternoon in the bog digging up blocks of peat peat which they would later, come December, burn in their kitchen stoves, just as their ancestors before them had done for thousands of years in this lonely patch of Denmark, where the winters are long and cold and darkness comes early. Nine feet down, and to their great shock, they had just uncovered a body, a man, lying naked on his side with his head pointing west, where the sun was just beginning to drop. The dead man's eyes were closed, his lips lightly pursed, as if he had just bitten into something bitter and wanted to spit it out. The whiskers on his chin were visible, and he wore a brown leather cap on which the careful stitching showed. Frightened, and who wouldn't be, the two farmers fetched police from the nearby village of Silkeborg, who soon arrived with representatives from the local museum. For in this region of northern Europe, bodies like this, remarkably well-preserved, some displaying signs of almost unimaginable violence, had been turning up for hundreds of years. As the archaeologist Miranda Althaus-Green writes... The presence of human remains in European bogs was noted at least as early as the mid-17th century, along with clothing, leather, coins, and jewelry. Most of these early human finds were discarded, but some were ground up into powder, put into jars labeled mumia, and sold as a medicine. Samuel Pepys, the famous diarist of the Great Fire of London, was offered just such a ghoulish bit of so-called medicine in May of 1668. Writing later that same night, Pepys recalled, And so I parted, having seen a mummy in a merchant's warehouse there, all the middle of the man or woman's body, black and hard. I never saw any before, and therefore it pleased me much, though an ill sight. And he did give me a little bit, and a bone of an arm, I suppose, and so home and there to bed. In fact, just twelve years before this in Tolan Fen, a young woman's remains had been found by a farmer who had at first mistaken her body for that of a drowned animal. Covered in two cloaks, one sheepskin and the other cowhide, 
her hair carefully dressed in a French plate that ran down to her shoulders. Experts determined the young woman's age to be somewhere between 25 and 30. She'd been hanged, strangled. And the date of her murder? Around 200 BCE. Writing over a decade later in his now-classic book, The Bog People, the archaeologist P.V. Glob recalled what followed when the museum representatives who were summoned that spring afternoon in 1950 to Tolan Fend realized the true scope of what those two peat-cutting farmers had stumbled upon. A telephone call was put through straight away to Aarhus University, where at that moment I was lecturing to a group of students on archaeological problems. Some hours later, that same evening, I stood with my students bent over the startling discovery face to face with an Iron Age man who, two millennia before, had been deposited in the bog as a sacrifice to the powers that ruled men's destinies. Two thousand years. It's almost impossible to wrap one's head around the idea that a human body, this vulnerable vessel of flesh and blood, could somehow cheat time to such a degree. Impossible to believe that this man, now known as Toland Man, had lived and died, according to our best radiocarbon estimates, some 500 years before Julius Caesar and Jesus Christ, back in an age when the world was filled with gods and goddesses, and filled with monsters too, trolls and sprites, demons, evil spirits, and with holdres, a kind of soul-devouring fairy whose unearthly beauty concealed an ice-cold and insatiable core. Hunters and lone wanderers were warned to keep away from the bogs and woods where holdres were said to lie in wait, ready to entice them to their deaths with promises of love. Those who went into such bogs, it was said, rarely came out alive. It was to the gods and goddesses that we humans desperately turned for protection. When our crops failed, when the ground shook and split open under our feet, when sickness took our cattle or our children, and famine stalked the roads and byways, pushing its rickety handcart from house to farmstead, collecting souls. When volcanoes erupted and the sun went dark with ash, as it was reported to have gone dark sometime around 44 BCE, after the eruption of Mount Etna, the same year Caesar was murdered on the Senate steps. As far away as China, chroniclers living through that strange year wrote, The sun was bluish-white and cast no shadow. Frost killed crops, widespread famine, wheat crops damaged, no harvest in autumn. Hear our prayers, we cried to the gods. Protect us. But that protection came at a cost, a terrible cost. Again, here's Glob, remembering that day. The air of gentle tranquility about the man was shattered when a small lump of peat was removed beside the head. This disclosed a rope made of two leather thongs twisted together, which encircled the neck in a noose drawn tight into the throat and then coiled like a snake over the shoulder and down the back. 
After this discovery, the wrinkled forehead and set mouth seemed to take on a look of affliction. Through a kind of chemical alchemy that to Tolan man's contemporaries would have seemed nothing short of magical, an icy, anaerobic brew of bog water and sphagnum moss, rich with naturally antibacterial, tannic, and humic acids, he had been released from death's inexorable course, which is to say, freed from the very annihilation and erasure that those same contemporaries had sought to escape through the ultimate sacrifice. And in doing so, in their desperate attempt to appease the gods and save themselves, became the very monsters they feared. What was Tolan Man's death like? Who was he? A criminal? A slave? Was he a captive of war, offered up in blood sacrifice to the Germanic god Woden, later called Odin, or the even older war god Tiwiz, or to some god whose name is now lost to us? And why leave his body here, in this desolate bog? What power did such places hold? To help answer these questions and to further explore this strange and terrifying world of Iron Age gods and monsters, I turn to archaeologist Miranda Althaus Green, author of the book Bog Bodies Uncovered and Professor Emeritus at Cardiff University's School of History, Archaeology, and Religion in Wales. I found her book to be enormously informative, deeply humane, full of hard science and unexpectedly dramatic details, and, well, just fascinating. And now, Miranda Althaus-Green. I must say, uh, your book, Bog Bodies Uncovered, was probably my introduction to this idea or the sort of research into bog bodies. From your book, I uh, was... uh, learned about Glob's uh, book, The Bog People, and then, of course, uh, Bodies in the Bog by Karen Sanders, and um, even The Buried Soul uh, by Tim Taylor. But your book is the one I keep going back to, so I I really appreciate your work. Thank you. Um, The first time I, I think one of the reasons my sort of interest or this idea of possibly writing a book about it uh, grew out of this whole thing was the first time I saw pictures of bog bodies. I've never seen them in per- uh, person before, but uh, that's sort of my next stage of research. But uh, I was fascinated by these images of uh, the Toland man, uh, particularly. Yes. Uh, and why do you suppose we are people are drawn to these images of bog bodies and uh, these displays? What's the fascination there? Well, let me explain um, about my visit to Silkeborg Museum, where the bog, where the Tollen Man is displayed. Um, it's a fantastic display. You go into a little room on your own, and all of the walls and the ceiling are decorated as though you're, you've entered a peat bog. And then in the middle of this small room, there is one chair, and next to the chair is the perfect case in which Tollen Man lies. And you can sit there inches away from this person who is 2,000 years old, and yet you can still see his eyelashes, you can see his hair, his beard, his his stubble. Um, He looks as though he's asleep, his eyes are closed, and he looks as though he would wake up any moment and start talking to you. So normally in archaeology, we're dealing with skeletons, just bones, 
But with the bog bodies, because of the preservation qualities of the, of the peat bog, particularly the, the sphagnum moss, then the, the skin remains, the, the eyes are there, the, the hair, uh, the flesh, the, the skin. And so they are so much more like people than skeletons, which we tend, unfortunately, to regard almost as artifacts. Whereas this, you can tell that this was a living, a living being who had a story to tell, a backstory, a biography. And that's what fascinates me. And and there's a difference. I think you you referred to this in in your book, uh, Bog Bodies Uncovered. Uh, Karen Sanders talks about there's a something a bit not unseemly, I want to say, but something a bit uh, complicated about viewing these bodies. Um, yes, in, indeed. And it's interesting, and I don't know whether you remember reading it in the book, but in the 1950s, one of the bog bodies that was found, the Graubel man. Um, the, the then king of, of Denmark said, you, you, we cannot display this person until we have made him cosmetically attractive because it's, it's an indignity, it's a, um, an invasion of, of the person's privacy to view them in the sort of state in which they were found. So even in the 1950s, there was a sensibility about art sort of, in a sense, objectifying these people. And I still feel today that we need to be very careful about how we display them. Um, and where Silkeborg was so good, that museum, is that you only went in on your own, so you don't have crowds of schoolchildren going, oh, look at that. It's, yeah. it's an intimate relationship between you and this person, and that gives that, that dead person far, far more dignity than it would have been had it been on a normal, in a normal museum display. But there is, there is a, a sort of unease, I think, about us. Um, it's, almost the, it's almost a pornographic gaze, if you're not careful. And particularly because most of these people were interred in the bog with no clothes. So they were naked and they were frail and vulnerable. And it's very important, I think. It doesn't matter whether they died yesterday or 2,000 years ago. Um, they need to be treated with respect. And they need to be displayed if they are going to be displayed at all in such a way as that respect commands itself. And um, one of the things I find so immediately compelling when viewing, seeing pictures, reading about bog bodies, is I'm reminded at every moment that this is a human being, that this is a person, um, as you say, he looks like he's sleeping, uh, Tolan man, in a way. And that makes me think of, uh, it makes me wonder how Tolan man, how a person in the Iron Age, maybe of 100 BCE, saw their world. And I think it's, it's, difficult if not impossible for people in the modern world to imagine how different perspective of the world was for people living in that age so how did your average iron age villager in 100 bc view something like nature or the gods and their role in the world it's almost impossible to be sure because we have no writing we have no written evidence from the people concerned so we have to deal with possibles and circumstantial evidence. But if you back project from the Roman period where we've got writing, um, particularly in areas where the Romans did conquer, it seems that people in the Iron Age did believe in a, a multi-god system where there was a spirit in every place, where the natural world was charged with spiritual energy, whether it was a, a pool or a stream or a waterfall, a mountain, a tree, a hill, whatever, there would be a spirit 
in every place. And therefore, the landscape must have been charged with a kind of spiritual fear that everything you did, you needed to make sure that the gods were on side. And I think that's important. Um, and the other thing that, in a way, one can ask an additional question on the back of that is, is that, you know, why were these people killed? Is it to do with famine? Is it to do with a failed harvest? Is it to do with a, a battle, a, a battle outcome that, that is that is wanted? Why are these people being killed? And in particular, why do they have such violent deaths so, so often? Because I think it's 99% of the bog bodies that have been found where there is enough evidence surviving have died untimely violent deaths because the, the norm in Iron Age Europe was not to inhume people but to, but to cremate them. So these people, for whatever reason, were special. And, 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 and Tim Taylor talks about this in his book, The Buried Soul, about a, a kind of fear of the dead too. They were special or different, marked out in life, and the method of their death or the way they were treated in death was different too. So their souls were possibly seen as dangerous, even in death. I think some of them were. I think sometimes you do get bodies buried underneath houses in the Iron Age, um, perhaps as foundation sacrifices. Um, but for the most part, and it, 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 still, it still persists today, we treat the, the dead differently from the living. Cemeteries are places set apart. Yes, they might be in the middle of cities, but they are set apart places. You don't bury granny in the back garden. You're, you're not allowed to. Um, and so I think there's a dual thing of respect for the person's soul, but also there's still a feeling of the dead are corrupt, they are decayed, therefore they can bring infection, so they have to be separated. So there's this sort of double feeling of fear, um, almost distaste sometimes, but also um, a feeling of um, that these people need to be revered and respected in death and treated so that they can't be trampled underfoot where they're dead, that they are placed in a special place. And yet their souls, uh, you talk about cremation being the standard sort of burial mode in, in that time, or at least dealing with death, I should say. Their bodies um, were not cremated. They were put in these bogs. Was there this idea that their souls would be attached to the body? The soul would not be freed? I think there is the, there is the sense in which, um, because the body couldn't decay, that they these people remained freeze-framed within the bogs, almost sort of dead but not quite dead. So they were in the limbo land between the living and the dead. And maybe one of the reasons for that was so that they could not join the ancestors because they were regarded as too dangerous to do so. And so they had to be stopped from going into the next world for whatever reason. And um, the bodies or bodies had been buried or interred in bogs, even during the Iron Age uh, for hundreds of years. So if you had lived in a village in the Iron Age and visited one of these, these bogs, these marshes, you might have been able to see bog bodies there that had been there for 50, 100, 200 years. Yes, I think so. And, and sometimes you get bog body, bogs where more body, more than one body is buried. And they will have a, you know, a stake or something to mark where they are and also perhaps to tie them into that place in the bog because some of them are tied down with, with stakes and, and branches and things. But um, the Tolland man um, had a companion, Elling woman, who, who was buried quite nearby. 
um, the Lindo bog in, in northwest England, there were at least two bodies from that bog. Um, so people, you know, they, they remained in the memory and sometimes they were revisited. And who's to say that they weren't sometimes dug up again for ritual reasons and then put back? We don't know. But it could have been that they were interred and reinterred again and again. Because we've got parallels in other societies where the dead are sometimes dug up and things happen to them and then they, they are put back in the grave again. And there is evidence for that in the Iron Age, actually, that people revisited graves, put, put new grave goods in, took grave goods out and then resealed the graves. So it's not necessarily that the burial in the bog or the interment in a grave was the last thing that happened to these people. And what did these bogs look like? Maybe during the Iron Age, when they were used in this way, what 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 would they? What was the atmosphere like? Well, the ones I visited in rural Denmark, I think, are very similar to how they would have been two thousand years ago. And the one that struck me very much was the one at Uthafen or Haraldskire in the centre of Jutland, which is um, in a natural theatre. It's in a, in a sort of bowl. So there's, there's there's the bog pool, and then it's surrounded by little hills. So it's almost like a theatre. Um, and of course, the bog and the area around the bog is different because it's not cultivable. You can't cultivate it. It's swampy. The, the plant growth are, are different. The, the bog oaks are the, probably the only trees that will grow around it. So it looks different. It would always look different. And I think that very idea of wild land that cannot be cultivated was important to the idea of why these people and how these people were put into the bogs. They were special rather odd places, perhaps edgy places where the spirits were thought to be very close to the surface and very close to the living. And um, the gods of this era, what were some of the gods uh, that we think that you think were um, worshipped during this time in this particular region? We have very little evidence, very little archaeology, because we don't have any inscriptions. They came in the Roman period. We have very few images of the gods dating to the Iron Age, very, very few. Um, if one's talking about names, the closest we're going to get um, are, are, are gods that are mentioned in classical writers, such as Lucan, who mentions three gods, Isis, Teutates, and Taranis, who were gods of the, the thunder and water and the tribe. Um, but Lucan was writing in the first century AD and he was writing about things he'd heard about in Gaul and perhaps Britain and maybe not extending further north. Um, but I think there were gods of war, gods of, gods, gods of storms, gods that could help, help or hinder agriculture, gods of death, of course. And so I think, you know, we're dealing again with, the, with this, these, these spirits of different parts of the natural world and, and the sky and the sea and, and everything. And each, I would have thought that each bog would have its own divinity and its own spirit. Think about how bogs work. Um, you know, they, are, they have a kind of miasma. They sometimes have a mist hanging over them. And because of the gases, they'll sometimes spontaneously combust into little flickers of flame. So particularly at night, they would have seemed really mysterious and, and charged with spiritual energy. So the, a grove, a particular grove or a particular bog may have had its own deity, just locally. Hmm, I think so. Yes, I think so. There would have been probably a hierarchy of gods. So big, major gods, gods of war, gods of thunder, gods of storms, that sort of thing. But, but underneath that, there'd be another layer of spirits that were much more sort of intimate and associated with particular features of the landscape. 
No, I've read I've read books. Uh, Davidson. There's a book by H.R. Ellis Davidson called Gods and Myths: Myths of Northern Europe. And, oh yes, I, yes, I have that. And it's a I guess it's a classic of uh, of that sort of scholarship. Um, some of the gods I've seen mentioned are Woden, Nerthus. Uh, these some of the gods, I, and I know the names change, uh, mm. and the names may have differed. But were, might these have been some of the gods you're talking about? The oh yes, Nerthus is mentioned as a Germanic deity by Tacitus. So yes, I think Nerthus would probably have been a very important goddess. Um, uh, the other ones, the the Norse gods, Woden and so on. We we again, it's difficult because of the the kind of lacuna in writing. We don't know how ancient those gods were, and they're not shared by um, Ireland or Gaul or Britain. They are very specific to the North. Um, whether they were invoked at that period of time, um, I should think they probably were in some form. But of course, it's not until much later that you actually get the North myth written down. And so we've got some idea of what the kind of um, hierarchy of, of, of gods in the North were. And and speaking of uh, Tacitus, what's your what's your take on Tacitus? He is another uh, Roman writer who wrote about um, this era, germ- uh, er- this area without having ever visited. How uh, how much credence do you put into Tacitus's Germania? Um, I think because he had this um, familial relationship with Agricola, who did serve in Gaul and Britain, uh, not necessarily in in, in Germania. But Agricola, um, his father-in-law, would have met soldiers in the Roman army who perhaps came from that area, the Rhineland and slightly beyond. So he would have had a certain amount of first-hand information about the area around the Rhineland. Um, and again, he's one of those people, he doesn't, he doesn't indulge in purple passages. He is one of the, I think, our most objective writers, but he has an agenda himself because he doesn't like, he's a member of the imperial court, but he doesn't approve of the way the empire is being run at the time. He doesn't approve of the emperor Domitian. Um, He finds the whole of the Roman court effete and corrupt and degenerate. And so he almost praises what he calls, he doesn't call them barbarians, but he praises simpler people. It's almost a noble savage idea of, because he's very kind about people like Boudicca, um, in Britain, um, in a way that most Romans would have been absolutely against her, because she was, you know, trying not to be part of the Roman Roman Empire. But it's it's something which um, he has got an agenda, but it's not a pro-Roman agenda, and so he may be being ultra sympathetic. But he's clearly getting his information from somewhere because it's quite detailed. And of course, he would have had access to people from that part of the world. He would have, in the imperial court, he would have, there'll be client kings coming to visit the imperial court. There'd be merchants. There'd be people coming and going, travellers who'd come back with tales. Now, some of them would be tall travellers' tales, but some of them would have an element of truth in it. And he does record as almost like war diaries, but almost like Caesar. Um, it's quite terse. It's quite under um, emotional. It's not very emotional stuff. And so I would be, happier to um, rely on Tacitus than somebody like Pliny um, or some of the other writers like Suetonius, who very much embroider, very much like scandal mongering and, and that sort of thing. So I think as far as it's possible to judge, bearing in mind his almost anti-Roman sympathies, 
that he's reasonably reliable. And, and human sacrifice had been at by that time in Rome was uh, forbidden uh, and had been for hundreds of years. Is that correct to your knowledge? Not. It, it was made illegal in, in in 97 BC, but it was still going on in the time of Augustus. We know from different literature. And, of course, archaeologically speaking, there is evidence that it carries on into Roman Britain, for example. There is evidence for sacrifice going on even a couple of hundred years after the the Romans have conquered Britain. So it carries on in a kind of subversive way. But it is is technically illegal from around about the end of the first century BC and, and the first part of the first century AD. I didn't know that the the uh, the only reference I'd heard of was the the maidens of a kind of pure maiden of Rome who uh, I'd heard about them perhaps being buried alive. But I didn't know that sacrifice had perhaps continued. Yeah, but that's not a sacrifice. The Vestal Virgins Vestal only sacrificed if they behaved badly and went off and had sex because it was a punishment, not a sacrifice. OK. But um, certainly the, uh, there's quite a lot of evidence for sacrifice going on in Rome at times of great crisis, for example, in the Punic Wars between Rome and the Carthaginians. Um, a sacrifice, for example, in, in, the, in the main forum in Rome of, of a, a Gaul and a Greek um, in, in order to try and avert disaster from the Carthaginians. But it was going on very, very rarely. Interestingly, um, Cicero... Uh, talks about his great enemy, Catiline, who was a subversive, an agitator, um, a rebel. And there is a story there that Catiline himself um, killed children and drank their blood. Now, that may be, obviously, Cicero just bad-mouthing Catiline, but it, it shows that it's there in the consciousness. It's there in collective memory. It hasn't gone away. So how did bog body burials, if you want to call them that, or bog body interments, differ from a typical burial at the time. You say that the the, the trend or the common practice was cremation? The common practice was cremation, we think, because we don't have the evidence. And I think a lot of people were scattered in rivers or their, or their ashes scattered. And there is some evidence that the excarnation went on. So sometimes bodies were exposed in the air for the um, the birds and the and wildlife to, to eat. Um, and that was the way that some people were got rid of. But the main thing is there is inhumation. There are burials of entire people, but they are normally rich burials, like the chariot burials that we've got in East Yorkshire in this country. Um, and they would have rich grave goods with them. The thing about the bog bodies is they've got, most of the, for the most part, they've got nothing to identify them. They don't have any grave goods, so no no offerings and no clothes very often. Um, and so it's almost as though their identity has been stripped away and they're put into the bog just as they, just in a sense, in the way they came into the world. So they went out of the world in the same way. And, and some, and I don't know whether Tim Taylor mentions it, I think he does, and I think it's a good point, that it may be that the skin-to-skin contact between the person and the bog was important, that intimate connection which clothes would have been interrupted. And, and why would that contact be important, do you think? Well, if, if we think of the bog as being a spiritual place, and if you're sacrificing somebody with a view, A, to appeasing the spirits, and B, to um, prevent the person actually joining the ancestors, then that intimate contact 
would be the strongest connection that you could possibly make and the strongest message you could possibly give to the gods of the bogs that this person is being sacrificed um, and the actual body of the person touches the spirit of the bog with nothing in between. And who might have been chosen for sacrifice? Because it wasn't, I think, re, re, from my understanding, reading of your book, uh, it wasn't just anyone. There were cer- certain people were set out or sort of It wasn't chosen. random. It wasn't random, no. Um, it's interesting. Um, there is evidence that some of the people, some of the younger people who were sacrificed were adolescents at the cusp of adulthood. And that may have been important itself when you're neither child nor adult, but you're both. So you're a liminal, edgy person. And in some societies, um, such as um, eastern, eastern parts of India, places like Odisha, um, there are shamans who, um, and the children who are at, at puberty, they, they seem to be regarded as the most powerful shamans because they already have a foot in the material world and a foot in the spirit world. And it may be that sometimes adolescents were chosen because they had a particular undissipated sexual energy because it hadn't been used, so it hadn't been exhausted. It was there at puberty in all, you know, all its prime. And that may have been that may have been interesting. And of course, you know, with puberty brings fertility. And if your reason for your sacrifice could be to avert um, a crop failure, then that makes that makes perfect sense. In a few cases, the um, the people chosen seem to be in the prime of life, as though they are primary prime um, warriors and people who could you know uh, fight in battle. So again, if that's something to do with warfare, the sacrifices associated with the need to defeat somebody or not to be defeated, then you might have a person that would actually fit that criterion. Um, but the other thing, which is slightly disturbing in one way, is that some of the people that sacrificed had something wrong with them. They had mobility problems. They had um, a deformed hip or they were stunted when they were children so they didn't walk properly. There's a girl from the Netherlands, Ida, who had um, very advanced curvature of the spine, which would have caused her to be stunted, but also to lurch so that she didn't walk properly and she would have been in constant pain. And these people were not singled out when they were tiny children and got rid of for eugenic economic reasons because they couldn't contribute to the economy. They were nurtured until they came of age, as it were, and then they were sacrificed. And it seems that um, perhaps in the months leading up, well, the the sacrifices, uh, do you think they occurred at a certain time of year? Sometimes. We don't know necessarily because some of the seeds and grains that were eaten as the kind of last supper, a special meal before death, these could have been kept for some time. But there's one body, the one um, at Clonny Cavern in, in Ireland that was found in 2003. His last meal was of sloes, the, 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 the very bitter berries that are of the blackthorn. So that ties his death down to the autumn, even possibly to the Celtic New Year at, at Saun, um at the end of October, beginning of November. So it's possible that some seasonal festivals were chosen as the, t- the best times for sacrifice. Um, but otherwise, it's 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 difficult to say unless the uh, because as I say the, the seeds and grains can survive for a long time. So it's difficult to say exactly which time of the year it was. But sometimes I think they probably did accord to the times of great national assemblies and annual assemblies of druids, for example, that Caesar t- talks us about. It talks about um, 
or some of the major, major feature, whether it's a pre-battle thing or whether it's a seasonal thing. Um, we don't know, you see, because um, we, we only know of one um, non-Roman Western European goddess who actually had a Roman festival in the Roman calendar, and that was Epona, who had her festival in December. Um, it may be that she, like some of the other so-called barbarian gods and goddesses, they did have their own birthdays, like saints' birthdays, at, at, and at times when people would, would make sacrifices to them and have festivals in their honour. We don't really know anything about that. What I do think, though, there are two things. You, um, I think you mentioned travel, and it's come to light very, very recently that two of the Danish bob bodies, they've been doing um, strontium isotopic analysis of the teeth and analysis of their hair, which would let, because it would be a kind of footprint of the water that they consumed, the water they drunk during the last few months of their lives, that both Tollen Man and the Herald Sky Woman had undertaken long journeys away from home just in the few months before they died. Almost as if possibly there was some kind of almost a ceremonial pilgrimage to a faraway place, maybe to um, enhance the sacrifice. This was somebody who travelled, somebody who'd, who, whose territory was big because they'd gone such a long way away and had come back invested with extra value because of where they'd been. There seems to be evidence that people before those chosen for sacrifice were treated uh, in a, spe- a specific way in the months leading up to their deaths. Is that true? We don't find that from the archaeological evidence so much, but we do find it. It's mentioned in um, a couple of um, classical references to um, sacrificial practices in southern Gaul in the Iron Age. And this is the sort of scapegoat sacrifice where somebody, a lowly person, was chosen um, from the town's population and hooked out of their poverty. And for a whole year, they would be given wonderful treatment. They'd be dressed in fine clothes and jewels and fed beautifully and had a fantastic year's life. Um, And then they would be sacrificed by either drowning or um, burning. Um, And in that way, the whole of the, the town's sins and misfortunes would go off with the sacrifice in a, in a kind of scapegoat thing, it would cleanse the town from all the mishaps that it, it, that it was going through by the sacrifice of this one person who'd been given this wonderful final year. But of course, the archaeology won't won't give us that information. Do you think that that was rare, common, or just one a part of a sort of patchwork of possible motives? I think all these sacrifices were very rare. I think they were done at times of great crisis or at times of great thanksgiving. It wasn't a run-of-the-mill thing. It's, it's you know, perhaps if you had two or three sacrifices a year, you it, that would be pushing it. I think it's extremely rare. Um, and if you look at some of the um, evidence from uh, some of the Gaulish war sanctuaries like Gournay in, in Picardy and the evidence from the corn silos at Danbury, it seems to suggest that you would, it would be very rare, but that it happened. Um, and even more occasionally, very, very occasionally, you might get a bit of cannibalism going on as well. Oh, really? Yeah. What evidence? Just occasionally there's evidence of butchery. Okay. Even in the Iron Age? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I did not know that. Um, it, it's very rare, but it's there. 
you know, defleshing of bones is is a, is a is a big marker for that. And the the one of the body parts from the Danebury uh, disused grain pits um, had actually been butchered, so that the only part that was um, placed in the pit was the pelvic area, as though again it's to do with fertility. Do you suppose that was tied to famine? Yes, or to do with the the hope that the the, the seed corn. Um, that was being wind overwintered that would remain fresh. So that kind of sacrificial thing possibly took place once in a lifetime. Reading your descriptions of the ritual and what the ritual may have possibly looked like uh, is harrowing and terrifying and fascinating. Um, could you perhaps describe what one of these rituals may have looked like? Well, the one where we've got possibly most information is one of the Lindo bodies from Cheshire. And this person, I think what, what is really chilling about this is that the people who were perpetrating the sacrificial rite here had a very, very good knowledge, and Tim Taylor picks this up too, a very good knowledge of human anatomy. So they knew how to keep the person at the edge of death for quite some time. So Lindo, the Lindo man, is hit hard on the head, enough to crack his skull, enough to stun him, but not enough to kill him. Then he's garroted, but they stop short at killing. And at the time of about to be killed, the throat is cut. And so at that time, the blood pressure would have been immensely high and the blood would shoot out in a kind of, in a real theatrical, dramatic performance. But even that didn't kill him because he was then pushed in the back and so that he went face down into the bog and he was still breathing because there was bog water in the lungs. So it's, it's a protracted, dramatic, theatrical performance, which possibly would have been viewed by everybody from around who would just watch it happening. Oh, so this may have been a public, public event. Oh, I think it was a spectator sport, yes, definitely. Yes, I think it would have been, it would have been watched um, because it was important that it was watched. And uh, one of the other things that I think happened is that sometimes you get multiple injuries, far more than was necessary to kill, but I think that that's to do with the need for it to be collective responsibility, because taking a life was probably always considered a very dangerous thing to do. And so everybody in the community possibly symbolically had a part to play in order to, um, in a sense, um, even out the responsibility so that it wouldn't come back to bite the person who'd actually done the killing. And you talk in your uh, book about uh, priestesses who we have uh, descriptions from Roman writers of mm -hmm. the priestesses going around in a, in a cart, uh, maybe embodying the goddess Nerthus. Mm -hmm. uh, could you talk a, a bit about the priestesses and their role in this? Yeah, well, again, you've got, um, I think it's the Greek geographer Strabo who's writing the first century AD, and he talks of Cimbrian priestesses. These are priestesses from southern Denmark in exactly the area where the bog bodies, or most of the bog bodies are found. And he talks of them, they were elderly, they were white haired, they wore long white robes, and they would um, sacrifice prisoners of war by cutting their throats and then collect the blood in a cauldron and in, in uh, incantations and so on. And this person would be killed in this way. And of course the blood possibly, we hope not, but it's possible that the blood was passed around to all the people to sort of take the old swig. And I think you describe in your uh, in your book, it's almost a theatrical, dramatic this event. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing is that I, we shouldn't 
we shouldn't rule out the possibility that music was played because there are some um, boggy sites which have got human remains um, and also remains of musical instruments, suggesting that uh, there were um, people playing music. And that is, that is mentioned in classical writers who say that the, when they were talking about Charles, Carthaginian child sacrifice, which took place in the third century BC, this is, these are the Carthaginians now, not the Romans, but apparently music was played in order to drown out the cries of children who were about to be sacrificed because that would seem to be bad luck for the gods to hear the cries. And, and alcohol may have been ingested in, in hallucinogenics perhaps too? Yes, there is some evidence, for example, if, for Graubau man, he had um, he'd ingested quite a lot of ergot, which will um, be very, very toxic and cause um, hallucinations and paranoia and cause you to make very odd weaving, almost dancing movements. Um, so there is evidence, and I think the Lindo man had mistletoe in his stomach, which, said, which again would be a narcotic um, and would maybe have given him hallucinations and trance, trance experiences before he died. So the whole thing could have been very protract, protracted. And of course, there's the Last Supper, the last meal these people were given just before they died, which is made up of really complicated um, agglomerations of seeds and cereal grains and nuts and so on, and very different from a normal diet that these people would have had. So there is a, there is a, the ritual starts probably at least a few days before they die, if not weeks, if not months. And it seems that the victims, if the victims were kept alive, as you say, for an extended period, they would they would have been in terror. Do you think this terror was intended? Um, I hope not. Um, I don't know whether, I think the grooming of these people um, could have had a number of different interpretations. It may be that the fear was um, because they would be highly charged. Um, maybe the fear, maybe their struggles or their cries um, would have been an important part of the ritual. We don't know enough about the spirits to whom these people were being sacrificed. But, you know, th- th- there is some evidence to, to suggest that it, the brutality of it is incredible. And I don't know whether you're, you know the book by um, René Girard. In 1977, he wrote a book called Violence and the Sacred, making yes. a very strong link. And, and again, I think this is very, very much borne out by the Bob Bodies. Yes, I have that. Actually, I have that book. Um, yes. That, I read that years ago. Um, and um, well, this, is, this has been uh, absolutely fascinating, harrowing and, and terrifying, too. And I just, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for writing your book. Uh, it was fascinating. I learned a lot from it. So thank you so much, Miranda. My pleasure. My thanks to Miranda Aldhouse Green. Her book is called Bog Bodies Uncovered. For more episodes, you can go to footnotes to a novel.com or wherever it is you get your podcast. And you can also follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search for Footnotes to a Novel. That's all one word. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. And if you just feel like saying hello, well, I'd love that too. Thanks for listening. Take care.